0: Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we listen to the other side. Side B is that side of the story that you don't usually hear. Growing up, I used to buy vinyl records and listen to Side A, the popular song that everyone knew and loved. But oftentimes, Side B would just get ignored. It just wasn't as well known, perhaps not worth listening to. Occasionally, I'd turn the record over and give it a chance. Every once in a while, I'd find a song that I rather liked and began listening to it even more than the song that I had bought the record for in the first place. In the same way, we're naturally driven towards the songs of people that we like, the ideas that we believe, side A. And we don't often give the other side, side B, a chance. And when we do, we sometimes find ourselves a bit surprised by what we hear. We might even come to like it. We become more open to a different idea, a different way to think about the world in our lives. At the very least, listening to other perspectives helps us understand and relate to each other better than to distance and to stereotype and ignore. That's the purpose of the Side B podcast to hopefully interest you in listening to ideas and perspectives you may not have heard. For Christians, it's to help you understand the lives and perspectives of skeptics and the various reasons they may push away from God. And for skeptics, it's to help you see how and why intelligent thinking people may actually turn from disbelief to belief in God. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. It's so great to have you on the show.
1: It's lovely to be with you, Joanna.
0: As we're getting started, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Obviously, I hear something very English in your speech. Where are you from?
1: Yes, so I'm in uh, uh, Hereford, England. Um, you, You might detect a Cockney swang. Swang twang sorry twang. <laughs> um, some people sometimes accuse me of being from Australia, but no, it's my, I'm from uh, um, London, England, um, and yeah. So I moved out to Hereford um, four years ago, which is in the west part of England. Um, I'm 46 years old. Uh, former policeman. I was a policeman for nearly five years, and then I basically left to become uh, a legal advisor. Uh, in criminal defense. So in a sense, I went from arresting people to defending them. Mm. Um, And then you could say, or someone said to me a few years ago, which I quite liked, so you've gone from arresting people to defending them to now trying to save them, because I'm now (laughs) in in the ministry with the Church of England. I'm a a vicar, or in America, you might say a pastor with the Church of England, uh, which I've been doing for the last, well, last six years, I suppose, if you include the training.
0: Well, since this show is about talking with former atheists and now that you're, or you are a reverend, you really have gone full circle. I'm eager to get into your story. That's quite, quite a change over a, over a lifetime. So Same. why don't we, at the beginning, just set the context for where your beliefs in atheism arose. So tell me about... Your understanding of God and religion and faith growing up, what kind of community were you in? What kind of family were you in? Did anyone believe in God or not? Why don't you talk with me about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I came from a, a loving, but very much of a, you know, very secular household. So I'm, I grew up with, I've got two brothers, a foster brother, a sister. So we lived in a, a large house a large household, um, but we never went to church or anything like that. Um, yeah, I had loving parents, but certainly God was not, God was never part of, was never part of things really. I certainly, you know, we grew up interested in various sports and all the rest of it. And I certainly grew up, um, very much as a, as a practical atheist, I suppose. Mm. Um, I never really thought about matters of God. And I very much lived, certainly as I as I grew up, as I got older, I, I lived for myself. So now I would look back and I, and I can look back and think, and, and you'll probably, if I go into different parts of my story, you'll you're, you're hear why. I live very much in rebellion towards God and very self-centered. And it never occurred to me that there'd be a reason to do otherwise. It never occurred to me. Well, no, it's not. It it seemed to me the only way to logically live was for yourself. Um, but actually, the, the the strange hypocrisy of that, if you like, is the older as I grew up and got to my late teenage years and, and especially at university, it became even more abundant. What's the point? So I never took the trouble of investigating god until later on Uh, and Mm. and i'll explain when and why that happened but to me it was just a given that it just seemed natural it just seemed innate that you you live for yourself what's the point in doing anything else and then actually more than that what's the point of anything and i became Mm. increasingly um basically an apathetic hedonist those were the words I would use. My atheism was just basically just born out by a deep sense of apathy and, and and hedonism, and there instinctively didn't seem to me any greater point, you know, meaning, purpose, or value in life than beyond those things. You know, now I can look up sort of Paul in 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 in, in the Bible in um I think it's First Corinthians, you know, eat, drink, you know, for tomorrow we die. You know, if there is no God, these sorts of things. So right. I just live by the presumption as if there was no God.
0: Right. I, I, I guess there weren't any other pictures in terms of Christianity, embodied Christianity, other Christians or, or religious influences around you that even made you question whether or not God existed or Or if you didn't or didn't have anything like that, what did you think that God and Christianity and all of that was?
1: Yeah, I thought it was – secularism has obviously been fairly rampant um, in the West, especially England, probably even more, a lot more so actually than America. And so you're kind of indoctrinated from an early age – Because everybody else tends to think the same or where within all of the media, within all of popular culture, at least the majority of it, it's as if it's just, you know, we've grown beyond that. And without making any effort, one is indoctrinated to believe that there's no more truth to Christianity. Jesus Christ is no more real than Father Christmas, to give, you know, to give a silly example. Um, which now is, is is bizarre when you actually stop and look at the evidence. But to me, it was just, you know, the, the cliché type of things that when I looked at or came across Christians, uh, I remember at university, for example, arguing with Christians on campus on a couple of occasions because, and that was where it was, I was I was clearly an atheist and, you know, would come across as an angry atheist to them because my presumption, and these were no more than presumptions, was just that Christianity was a strange crutch uh, for for deluded people. Um, I remember seeing a documentary in which Peter Atkins, uh, an Oxford great friend of Richard Dawkins, just said that anybody, what do you think of people who believe, he was asked, and he just said that they're stupid. Uh, and I think back then I just assumed the same thing, that people were giving some attachment to some delusion because it made them feel better. or m- More than that. I, I just suspected that people would became Christians because they were just selfish. And so I remember challenging them saying, so why why are you a Christian? And basically suggesting that well, you're just a Christian because you want some deity to to take care of you because actually you're obsessed with your own salvation. and I knew enough about Christianity to know that supposedly, it was a route to salvation, and therefore, by default, my assumption was that these strange weirdos, these strange Christians, were just deluded people who needed a crutch, who were just obsessed with getting themselves saved. And therefore, actually, it's not a religion of um, you know, of love and charity and all the rest of it, but actually, deep down, Christians were just selfish people who wanted some mystical deity to save them. Does so that make sense? I mean, now, when I, as I try and... Say this stuff, it sounds, you know, nonsense, but this was kind of the way I thought back then.
0: Right. Yeah. You, you described yourself as somewhat of an apathetic hedonist, but may, perhaps that was a little bit later on in, a, in the sense that if you had so much anger and contempt, that, that doesn't sound apathetic to me. It sounds like you had a rather strong. Sense of self about your atheism and a strong opinion, otherwise, you know, about Christianity.
1: I was very suspicious regarding myself and how I lived. I lived with enormous apathy and hedonism, so together. But in terms of how I viewed Christians, because I never actually looked properly into Christianity, but I viewed Christians with great suspicion for kind of Mm. the the reasons that that I just mentioned. Right. So yeah, I was a strange mix.
0: We all are. We all are. <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. We right.
0: Are. Right. So so you lived this way with this this sense of apathy and, and really sense of self-pursuit, your your in your own way, because you didn't see any meaning or purpose in life. And I I'm impressed with that statement in the sense that as an atheist, you must have been somewhat thoughtful about what atheism was or what naturalism brought or did not bring. Mm. It seems to me that when you absorb atheism within secular culture, oftentimes you just go with the flow and really don't think about the implications of that worldview. But in a sense, you had really considered atheism in some regard in that did you really think through those implications of there's no real objective meaning, purpose, value, morality, those kinds of things at all?
1: It was on a, for me, it was on a, on a subconscious level. What, one of the, the things maybe we'll get to shortly uh, that, that was a big trigger was uh, was a William Lane Craig essay when he wrote, um, is there life, You know, is there meaning to life without God or something? I think he ended up putting it um, in one of his, one or two of his books. But it absolutely shook me to the core because he, he brilliantly articulated everything I'd always kind of assumed and lived by, and so I was confronted with it. But before I read that, and a lot of things happened before I did did read that. Um, but I just lived with the sort of subconscious. Everyone lives with a subconscious awareness that life is fleeting, that they are going to die. So I always had a strong sense of my own mortality. It's just this inescapable end, the inescapable destiny that, that we all face. Um, and I was also had, you know, enough awareness to know how long this universe had been here, how brief and and You know, within 250 years, nobody is going to know anything about you. So even today, for example, we see more and more humanist funerals and people talk about people living on uh, through other people's memories and stuff. And it's really a sham. I knew that life itself ultimately was absurd because relative, relative to what we know about time and the universe, our lives are just a grain of sand. So, therefore, very quickly growing up as as, as a teenager and then especially when I got to university, I found no desire or enthusiasm for anything. All I lived for were the things that gave me immediate pleasures. Mm -hmm. So, I I went to university just to play sport uh, and I never did anything. I never did any studies whatsoever. I basically lied and cheated my way uh, through just to, to manage to get through university. And, and just lived a, a, a very hedonistic lifestyle. And to me it was just obvious, why would you bother to do anything else?
0: Mm. So it was just an obvious reality to you. That's You've painted quite a picture. I, I think we understand where you were and, and the, the way you were living and what you were thinking walk me a little bit farther along and, and tell me what began to change for you or what opened you to the possibility that that God exists or or something might be different than you thought it was
1: so in a way my my, my conversion if you like or my testimony is 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 a story of of, of, of three prayers in a sense and it's the, and it's the story of two women and three prayers okay? What happened was so um, when I was at university and in, 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 in the, so I was about twenty twenty one at the time. Bizarrely I made this and I remember these I remember these things very clearly in my head. I made a bizarre transactional bargain with inverted commas, big inverted commas god, right? Um, and it's did that this sounds bizarre. And it was, because I didn't believe there was a God. But I basically made this prayer one day. It wasn't, well, it was, it was, no, there's no way to call it prayer. It was a bargain, but let's just say. And it was basically, I saw this female that I desired, right? And she was with somebody else, and I was with somebody else. And I basically said, and this reflects a lot of what I was like at the time. Um, and anyway, I won't. I said, if if you God, if you if are real, if you give me this this girl, I promise you, I'll I'll be faithful to her. And then a little while later, we we got together. Um. Now we were together for about two years. Um, and I was a lot better. I think for a while, I, I could genuinely feel I was happy. And, and this was a really a really fine individual. Have you do you have the Alpha Course? Have you heard of the Alpha Course in America? Yes,
0: yes, I have heard of it. But for those who haven't heard of it, why don't you tell us what that is?
1: So, the Alpha Course is something that originated from um, a place called um, um oh HDB HDB Church in, in England in London, a big church in England, uh, and a guy called Nicky Gumbel took on this course, which basically was was a was a way of introducing people to the to Christianity and exploring um, questions of life through the lens of, of Christianity and Jesus Christ, basically. And it's basically become a global worldwide phenomenon, this course. And, it, and it's superb. So, so this this lady that I was with at the time, her name's uh, Jeanette, she went on an alpha course. And to cut a long story short, she became a Christian. And she wanted to live like one. And although... Um, so, so basically when I say she wanted to live like one, it meant she no longer wanted to have sex before marriage. If I'm being blunt, um, this wasn't really ideal for me. And I know that basically she was just waiting for me to, to propose and to marry her. And I didn't do that. What I did was I, I basically tried to crush her faith. I was. I thought, how can you choose this mystical, bizarre god that you've sort of invented, or that it's just been from this strange course that you've been on? How can you choose this bizarre god over me? Mm -hmm. And so I was angry, and basically I tried to. uh, Basically, I, I broke her heart, and I really broke her heart, and. I was in a way trying to break her faith as a, as a means of revenge for her kind of betrayal, because she chose this nonsense, mystical God over me. Mm. Um, I will eventually everything I say will, will will relate to each other. So just stay with me.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: I I thought I was going to be free. Um, So As I did this, I was also aware that I was breaking my own agreement with God. So rather than marry her, and stick to this bizarre agreement that I'd made with inverted commas God, this bargain, this higher power that I tried to make this strange bargain with, I thought, stuff you, stuff her, stuff this stupid um, superstitious nonsense, I'm going to go back and and live for myself and so in in a sense I betrayed this agreement I'd made with God and obviously betrayed her in that sense
0: yes
1: Um, because I was trying to crush her spirit and crush her this newfound faith I thought I'd find some more freedom I thought I'd go back and find a a sense of freedom and I just threw myself into a major hedonistic lifestyle far more than than ever before I, I really was living by the week by the day on, on a cocktail of, of drink, drugs, and sexual conquests. I mean, at the t- I was a serving police officer at the time, but I was going out several, most nights of the week with pockets full of this that, and the other. Um, and it, and it really was, yeah, drink, drugs, sexual conquests with absolutely no regard to who I was hurting along the way. Um, it, it was the optimum of rebellion and, uh, um yeah mm. now a few years of of living like this i then met an, another girl funnily enough on a, on a dating site and as you not probably won't surprise you to know i was on a few of them but uh <laughs> a world basically, to cut a long story short a whirlwind romance basically began um this was someone who who lived in in wales um But we kind of started meeting online, and then within a year, she moved down to to London to live with me. Um, So many things about this relationship had been out of my control. How we met online was bizarre. It's because she liked my screen name, Jamie. It's not even my real name. I mean, I could go on with lots of other just weird things, um, but it was a, a whirlwind romance. Now, within a year, she became ill. And, and we weirdly ill. And she then took a blood test. Um, and the blood test showed that um, she was HIV positive. Oh, she man. she had she had the AIDS virus. Now I knew bear in mind this is getting on towards 20 years ago, so um, even twenty years ago it was a lot more of a you know of a death sentence than you know hopefully it is today for most people. But from what I I knew about her and what she knew about me, it was clear that I must have given this to her, that she couldn't have got it any other way than from me. So um, she was was and is an amazing woman. Um, And I remember the day and the days really well. and, And I was suddenly faced with this knowledge that I'd killed her, you know, to me, it was like I, I'd pray. killed her, and I remember the night when I was sobbing uncontrollably, crying uncontrollably on her shoulder, and she was consoling me. <laughs> it says a lot about her.
0: Yes.
1: She seemed more okay with it than I was. I just couldn't handle it that I that I feel like I'd killed her. Um, and all because of my reckless, self-destructive, selfish hedonism. Um, now, then I prayed. I remember that night when I really, it really prayed. It's, I remember it like it was yesterday. And basically I, I really prayed, you know, totally different to the sort of stupid juvenile bargaining that was just a pretense before. This time I really cried out to God. and I, I really cried out, uh, you know. I, mean, I basically remember praying um I deserve this, you know. Take me, but please, somehow, if you can spare her, because she doesn't deserve this. She doesn't deserve this. Please, just take me. So it was on. It was so different in in my heart, and and I was I was literally crying as I was praying this to God. And um, a week later, they double check these things. A week later, she did another blood test and she was clear. Really? Uh, yeah. And um, it was incredible. And obviously, yeah, I then true. took a test and I was clear. Go on.
0: Oh my goodness. So, go on, go on. I presume you attributed that to an answered prayer?
1: Very easily. I, I I don't know. Um, I won't know this side of I won't know this side of sort of heaven if I get, you know, or or I won't know in this world. Back then, the the medics obviously say, well, we don't really know what happened for some reason. It must have been a false positive before. You know, we can't really explain. That's all they can say. Right. Um, But I do believe, yes, to answer your question, I do believe that was an answer prayer because I believe either God performed uh, some sort of a healing miracle or I believe that God manipulated those tests as his means of of doing business with me,
0: just hum- humbling you. Yes,
1: we're both you know we're both Christians now. Um, on the day she was uh, on the day she was um, got this all clear result, I proposed for that that very day, and um, <gasps> we've been married ever since.
0: So this girl is your wife. Yeah. Oh my. Okay. I'd like to pause for a moment and ask you a favor. If you're enjoying the Side B podcast or find these stories helpful, would you please leave us a review and rating wherever you download these episodes? Your feedback helps other people find these stories and we genuinely appreciate your support. Now back to our story.
1: And um, there's been there's been loads of other stuff. Oh, sorry, I could go off on lots of tangents, but um, just to say that God has answered prayer in other extraordinary ways. Um, just to give you a quick flavour, yes. Um, we had something like so. Some some my wife Melissa's her name. She's got a daughter, um, Bronwyn, and and she was one, was wanted to me to be her dad when when she met. She's five. She's now nearly twenty four. But we were trying to give Bronny. Um, a sibling for, for years, and, and Lissa had oh, multiple miscarriages. Um, she'd had an ectopic pregnancy. She had pr- uh, cancer cells, pre-cancer cells, and was advised in her early 20s to have a hysterectomy. Her mum had a hysterectomy at 29, uh, but she felt God was telling her not to do that. Um. And then I had my own issues. This is, I swear to you, this isn't this, this is no exaggeration. I had lots of tests done. Because we were investigating both of us for, for fertility and trying to see how we could, and um, we were about to have IVF treatment. Three weeks after I was given a test result where I had a, was given a zero percent chance of fertility, we conceived Maddie, who's now eleven. Um,
0: another another false positive and or miracle <laughs> or answered prayer.
1: I hadn't thought of it like that. I mean, for that, lots of people were praying for. It. At that point, I was—I've skipped forward many years, and there's various things to say in between. But right. um, all of our church were praying for us over those years of infertility. Um, and, I, and, and to me, that was because I had the evidence of the test, and then I could, we worked out when we must have conceived. It was three weeks after I had had that test result. Right. Again, lots of people have been praying for us. That's just to give you another flavour. Right. Just, just to kind of go back to my initial conversion, yeah. and then yes. lost say about the other things where God was prompting me and uh, how I came to investigate the, the truths of Christianity and the faith. But I mentioned the first girl, Jeanette, because on the night I was baptized, which I think was 2008, 2009, um, I, I managed to trace her. And I, it, it, it I was at over the moon because I traced her from, by Facebook and she I hadn't crushed her faith, far from it. She was living a wonderful Christian life, wonderful family life she had in Australia, both of whom have been in, in ministry in different parts. Both her and her husband have been in ministry in different ways. She's got a lovely family. And I had to ask her whether she ever prayed for me. And I never forget her answer. She just said, she said, I prayed for you many, 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 many times she mm-hmm. basically said she'd never stop praying for me oh wow that's kind of what and this was and, you know and i tried to just you know i really hurt her and so right. the joy i have from kind of the testimony and certainly is I'm um, this is why i'm convinced god was answering prayer god heard my desperate prayer but he, but she had been praying for me and it's her prayers that i'm convinced for, for me, that I'm convinced he answered.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Because so many things had to happen that were completely beyond my control. Right. So I'm, I'm one of these people, not one of these, yes, yeah, so I think a lot of people m- might feel this, but I'm fairly confident, God, for many reasons, I can't give you all the reasons, but for many reasons I'm convinced that God brought me and my wife Melissa together as part of the answer to the prayer because – Melissa was involved in choosing where we were going to live. And, and and she wanted to start going to a church, to try and go to a church. Basically, she'd been brought up as a, as a Catholic, Roman Catholic, but the worst sort of childhood she had. I mean, the worst. Um, it was her influence. She started looking at local churches. And the only reason I ever walked into a church
0: no, no.
1: was because… It's,
0: it's really a…
1: In our nearest church, bear in mind, we were now living in a place called Loughton in Essex. Um, Again, she was integral to where we were living. And then as we were looking at local churches online, I noticed that the minister, the vicar of, of one of the nearest ones, was a man whose name was Alan Comfort. And he used to play football, soccer. Soccer, you call it in America. So in a professional team, that was fairly local to, to where i grew up in london he used to play for a team called Leighton orient which was a sort of lower league but still professional level and he was one of the best players so he was so one of the sort of a minor superstar of football of where i grew up uh and now bizarrely becomes was now this vicar of this local church and i was absolutely intrigued um and it's That it was that factor that got me to walk into a church the first time. So, in an extraordinary way, I suppose, I never really thought about it like this actually. But at the beginning, at the very start, I mentioned kind of I grew up in a home that was obsessed by sport. And in a sense, I think God used that obsession to get me to walk into a church. And it was a sportsman that kind of got dangled <laughs> in front of me to get me to walk through a church door. I hadn't thought of it like that before. But
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. and, and, I, and I,
1: so we went there. And, and Alan, Alan spoke very well, um, and so I kept going back. And then of course eventually okay. I did an alpha course. Go on, John, Sorry, oh, I
0: was just so how when you when you decided to step foot in a church, how much later was that, or when when was that relative to? that moment where you felt like your prayer was answered and both your and her blood tests were clear. So you had yeah. that moment of, of re- relief and perhaps yeah. maybe a little belief. So how yeah. much time passed between so def- those two things? Yeah,
1: definitely that moment was the the, the sort of the, the most incredible moment and in that series of events. And so my journey really definitely started there uh, Well, you know, beyond my complete rebellion of God before that in various ways. Um, so that we were married in 2004. So it would have been 2003. So as I say, we hadn't, it was a fairly whirlwind romance, but 2002, 2003 was when we, we'd gone through this, these events with the HIV. Um, and then we got married in 2004, and so we would have moved to, to Loughton um, within a couple of years after that. So I probably first walked into a church. I, I wish I knew the exact date or year, but it would have been 2005, 2006.
0: So after that moment of the, the sense that a prayer was answered, did mm. that open you towards the possibility of a real God existing? So yes. that by the time you got to a place where you're willing to walk in a church door, you would consider yourself open towards that possibility. Definitely. Or walking, walking into Definitely. that possibility.
1: Definitely. It's certainly in my case, it takes to the point of despair. So in those moments, I remember these, this that day and, and this, you know, of crying out to God like it was yesterday. I still struggle to talk about it without welling up. It's like God knows us better than we know ourselves, don't we? It was in that moment of despair when, what did I do? I knew nothing else but to reach out earnestly and honestly, desperately to God. Um, And that was real when I did it. And yet everything in my life up to that was, was no belief, thinking it was a fantasy and nonsense, but actually, I don't know. Something happens when when we are faced with the most profound things, especially when it's when we're desperate. That that instinct, I think, that little glimmer doesn't go from our souls. Um, and s- sorry, um, Jana. Sorry. No. No it's really a i've lost my thread again i took myself back yeah. to that night. okay go, go, go back to your question so yes feeling that something extraordinary had happened that i'd cried out at the bottom of my soul to my creator god and he'd answered me yes i can that without question i would never would have walked into a church i wouldn't have walked into a church i don't think had any of those things ha- not happened so i was open to uh, you know, I didn't pour scorn on the fact that my wife wanted to go to church and was, was asking me to go with her. I wasn't scornful and like let's let's you know be antagonistic or, 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 or worse. I was open to it, and then and then the you know the cherry on the on the top was the fact that it was a surreal thing about who actually was the vicar of this one particular church. So yeah, so my heart had already my heart was, was had already been slightly softened by these extraordinary events that did, didn't make me more open to go. Um, and so I did go with with ears far more open to hearing than I probably otherwise would have done.
0: And then um, what did you hear when you started listening?
1: Funnily enough, the, the first time, I, I I remember fairly confidently again that Alan was speaking on Revelation. And it was fascinating, and he spoke well. And so I I wanted to go back and and I kept going back. Um, And then eventually they were running an alpha course. And and I, you know, it's funny now as a a vicar, you know, so much of my planning and, and, and what we're trying to do is get people to the place where we can invite them to alpha and they'll actually think seriously about it and come. I remember I asked Alan if I could go to alpha. I was the one. My heart was softened enough, and I'd heard enough to know I wanted to do this and look at this properly. Um, but there were other little triggers as well. So, um, like for, for example, in I remember this. This was a significant thing for me. In 2006, I was channel hopping when I came across a documentary. Again, I just feel this was. I remember it so vividly, and I feel it was. A, it was. A, we now would call them a God incidents, and, and there's so many that have happened. But I came across a a documentary whilst channel-hopping, and it was called God, the Root of All Evil. And it was Richard Dawkins at the height of his, on the back of his The God Delusion book. Right. And he made this documentary. So he was very popular at the time. Funnily enough, it was in that documentary, I think, that um, Peter Atkins, I mentioned earlier, was just saying that anybody who believes in God is stupid. But this shook me. This was another sort of pivotal moment when I realized that actually whether Richard Dawkins is speaking the truth or not is the most important thing in the world it is the most important question for any of us whether God exists or not and I kind of I'd always without thinking through things lived in an apathy of why bother This totally, this documentary totally shook me out of my apathy on the back of, yes, what happened in the previous years. Now it was clear to me this is the most important question of all. Now I'd been an investigator all my life, I'd I'd worked in in law, I'd been a policeman. Um, you know, I love reading Jim Warner Wallace now, for example. Um, I'd been a policeman or and then worked in criminal defense, so I'd been a Around the law uh, uh, um, and investigations all my life, and so it seemed just natural to me, it still is, to investigate the God question, if I can put it like that, and that's mm. never left me. And so, for me, it, it, at, at that point, it was, hang on a minute, seek the tr- I'm a truth seeker before I'm anything else. Even before, if anybody asks me why I'm a Christian. It's, you know, I could go into all the details of what God's done in my life and answer prayer, but the other side of the coin, I mentioned two sides of the coin before, the other side of the coin is quite simply because it's true. I'm a Christian because it's true, not for not for, not for any other reason. Everything, you know, it's, it's a classic C.S. Lewis stuff. Um, it took a Richard Dawkins' documentary, you know, and I also then read The God Delusion, um, and it took him – to make me realize that, you know, the great C.S. Lewis stuff, you know, the truth of Christianity cannot be moderately important. I think C.S. Lewis, I, I love some of his stuff. It's either the biggest humbug or, or whatever he calls it, um, or it is the most important thing to know. One thing it can't be is moderately important. Um, right, and from okay. that moment onwards in 2006, I've always absolutely profoundly believed that. Um yeah, similar with Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, is central. One thing he cannot be is, uh, again, paraphrasing Lewis, he cannot be a good teacher or, you know, anything patronizing like that, I think he says. He's either the um, severely deluded, the devil of hell or worse, or he is the son of God. And actually, yeah, even before I'd read any Lewis, the awareness of, of that of that question that was just suddenly hit me hard. And to my, obviously, I said, not to myself, no, one could say from how I'd grown up, I slowly but surely became pleasantly surprised. Not only is it true, but it's, well, it's, we have an abundance of evidence for the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as I'm sure you know. Um, you know, yes. I first started reading as I was doing Alpha. So from Richard Dawkins, I, I set out to conduct my own investigation. And the first place I went to was Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Fabulous. And, uh, you know, we now, in the, in the last year or so as a church, the, the, the Hollywood movie adaptation of The Case for Christ, we've been sending, you know, we've had film nights and it's gone through the whole congregation. And actually, I think they've done a pretty good job with that. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but. Yes, I have yeah. Twice. twice. Yeah, and I can. I, I, I've got to get my dad to watch it. But people I watch it with, I, I do say to them, I can, you know, watch this, and because I really relate to Lee Strobel in many ways. You know, he doesn't hide the fact that he was a drinker in the film, and and and, and, and antagonistic, and all those things, and um, you know, I just I'm fairly, I feel humble doesn't doesn't cut it. But humble to think that God, and this is what I wrestled with for, for a while, actually, is why would God do these things for me? Why? What well, I couldn't get my head around it until I started to understand the depth and love of God because of what he's done in Christ. And that actually he loves everybody to that degree. Um, yeah, through, I mean, through Lee Strobel, I then, that took me to people like William Lane Craig, who was a massive influence on me. Um, for example, another pivotal thing was when I first—I think it was 2009—when I first when I watched William Lane Craig debating Christopher Hitchens, and it was like this isn't even this isn't even a, this isn't even con- a contest. Christopher Hitchens, for all of his skilled rhetoric and 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 clever wordplay, he had no answer to to the conveyor belt of good argument and evidence. Um, that there is for Christianity, uh, and that was just clear to me. And so, I, you know, I, I so reasonable faith, uh, Bill Craig's um, ministry, they run chapters, and and I, and I became qualified as a chapter director um, many years ago, and and that's always been a good good sort of feeding feeding pool for me. He's been a big influence.
0: So obviously, over time and investigation, you you became convinced that it was true. Obviously, existentially and spiritually, you believed God was real. Yeah. So those things came together, and you came to a place of
1: belief. Yeah, I'm. It's sort of. I feel to say humble that doesn't. When I stop and think about it, it, it's hard to get my head around, but. In personal ways, God has been personal to me, you know, my existential angst, the arguments and evidence. um, In every way, God has kind of met me through, yeah, through circumstances, through, he's given me the means to know that, that he's there. I think, he, I think through Jesus Christ and the evidence that God has ordained to give us through the Bible, especially the New Testament, he's given everyone access to sufficient evidence. I mean, it's like it's the Pascal stuff. I think God is a, obviously, I mean, it sounds ridiculous we me saying this, but I think God is a genius, and I think God has so ordained this world to be an arena in which people, the human condition and the fallen nature of human beings gives them sufficient evidence whether that's inner reasons or outer reasons, to stay rebelled from him and to disbelieve him and to reject him. An equal amount, Pascal mentioned this, has given sufficient amount for people to be able to find him if they seek him. I think there's an incredible balance uh, about the way God has ordained things.
0: We're going to quickly pause our story for a moment so that I can tell you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute. For over 40 years, the Institute has been committed to developing wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate, share, defend, and live their faith in personal and public life. Please consider making a donation to the C.S. Lewis Institute. To donate, go to our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org and click Donate. Thank you. Now let's get back to our story. Yes, they they have. Uh, he has. Uh, I love the way that Pascal talks about. There's a he gives us enough light in order to see, but enough shadow if we want to hide. And that sense of freedom and free will that he gives us, and and it's interesting to me that once you had the eyes to see or the ears to hear, you began to see. You began to see it in loads, like you said, they're a conveyor belt of evidence. I love that turn of phrase. Um, but it also, I think your life really speaks to, when you make the statement, uh, whether or not God exists is the most important question of all. Mm. You not only took that for yourself, you actually took that for your own life in terms of helping others understand and answer that question. Because obviously you moved into a place where you're doing this professionally. Tell me <laughs> how you you made that move. I mean, that's quite uh, that's quite a move to move into the ministry. Uh, tell me, yeah. tell me about that.
1: It's funny. I, I can't. I couldn't tell you, John. When I um, became a Christian, it was so not one Damascus Road experience. Not an awful lot of things happened, as, as you as you can tell. Um, where some people, it is a you know, fingers of the finger, Damascus crow. So I can't say when I became a Christian. I can, I know I was baptized in, I think, 08 or 09. Um, and so it'd been in the years preceding that. I can tell you that it was the 10th of January, 2013, that I felt I was being, or God was calling me to, to go into full-time ministry. After a relatively sleepless night, I, I know it was that day, because I wrote it down that day. Uh, and I told my, my wife, And it was just to me, it was just obvious. If and 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 it is, it's it's. Although I'm still, I I'm still a wretched sinner. Um, I'm a lot less of a I'm a a lot less of a sinner (laughs) than I was. But um, it's this. If it's it's C.S. Lewis stuff. It's just, to me, it's just obvious what is more important than God and what is more important than, than God in Christ, the way he's revealed himself to us. And to me, it just became clear uh, leading up and then that day. What else are you li- living for? In fact, again, I'm off the top of my head now, actually, I'm joining the dots even now as I, as I reflect. I grew up thinking what's the point of anything in life to a certain degree? Meaningless, hopeless. No, you know, meaning, value, or hope, ultimately. When you find the ultimate meaning and purpose and the foundation on which anything and everything has meaning, purpose, and value, it was, well, what else are you going to do other than this? And that's really how it was for me.
0: It became a clear path to what you were called to do, and I, it sounds like you embraced that f- with both arms, just full-hearted, and you never looked back.
1: No, my, my, my sort of str- struggle, if you will, my, you know, the, the sort of race I'm running, you know, we strive on for the prize uh, Pauline type stuff is I just p- wish people could have, what is it that will give people that same awakening I've had to and it, on, on a superficial level or a conscious level? I just I, I think what, what why can't other people see just how important this is? Why can't they see that it means, you know, entire destinies, all meaning, their lives are, are meaningless unless there is a God. Um, why? What can I do? What can I do to help them see that they need to at least look into this stuff? What is it? Uh, and, of course, I... I because to me, it's like obvious. Why, why wouldn't you investigate Christianity? So I'm always tr- desperately thinking through what is it we can do to try and get people to see that, um, of how important at least the question is, so to spend some time exploring it. Well, and then, of course, even as I hear myself saying that, it's, well, actually, it took God to intervene <laughs> <for> significantly <laughs> in my life for me to see that. Oh, and hence, there lies in, you know, God's grace. We, we need to be called by God himself and the Holy Spirit to can to at least, you know, and know a lot of people don't like the term, but, you know, God's preventing grace. No one can come to the Father unless the Son calls him. Mm. Um, we remain blind. Also, a lot of the analogies from both the Old and New Testaments, that we're in a state of spiritual blindness, and we need God to to do the things that will open our eyes and open our ears to see the significance and, and then move on from there. Um, and so that's really, that's why I'm minute. I mean, you know, I'm fundamentally, if I, if I were to label myself or people were to label me, they would say, you know, I'm an evangelist and apologist first. Um, because if, if, you know, one of the most absurd things of, of, of the culture we live in and have been living in is this idea that oh, it's too, too, true for you, but not for me. And this, you know, I'm a firm believer in objective truth, as you can probably tell. And yes. so, the, the truth of the salvation in Jesus Christ, obviously there's nothing more important than that. Um, what, what can we do to get people to to look into it? And so I spend my life now trying to build relationships with people, trying to encourage people to be ambassadors for Christ, um, to care for others, to, to, to nurture community and relationships so that you can get to a point where an invitation that is given to something like an Alpha course is not just going to be fallen on deaf ears, but it will be given a fair hearing. And people talking about their faith will be given a fair hearing. Or the invitation to come to church or or come to something like an Alpha course, they will receive it warmly because they'll have received it from somebody that they're already warm towards. Um, I think that's why I do what I do and to try and get others – to, to similarly be the ambassadors of Christ in that way. Um, Greg Kokel is another influence. I use that phrase, Greg, um, ambassadors of Christ. I think that's that's one of his phrases, which is another, you know, it's a good catch-all apt term.
0: Yes, it is. I think this is a, a really wonderful place to to transition. If you were to be able to speak directly to a curious skeptic or at least someone who's, raising an eyebrow or just willing to hear you out for just a moment, what would you tell the the curious skeptic?
1: Oh, I wish I was prepared something in my mind to that question. But of course, you know, I should be prepared. I'm always telling everybody else first, Peter 3.15. Um, I think it makes all the difference in the world. So I'd ask a conversation will always be, be the way to go. What is it you're looking for in your life? People don't like thinking about their own mortality. I think people are aware of their own mortality. So is there more than this life? And I think I think there's ways in which people can look inside themselves and outside themselves to find the truth, and that it does lie in Jesus Christ. So depending on, on how the conversation would go, I would say, look at the beginning of the universe. Um, the universe is, is finite and, you know, arguments for there being a creator, the Kalam cosmological argument, for example. I'd say you can look at the fine tuning of the of the universe, uh, again, which points to a, to a designer. Um, the argument for mathematics. So these are all the ways that people can look outside of themselves to look at, actually, there's a lot of good reasons to think there is a creator. Um did I just say the argument for ma- Yeah, the argument for mathematics would be it would be another one. And how, you know um, mathematics coheres in a in an extraordinary way with science in a, in a reliable, predictable way. Again, that speaks of creator. But then, probably more important than those things, I would say I will challenge any individual and say, you can look inside yourself to know the truth. Now, on one hand, when other people say that, my, I immediately get sort of skeptical because that's a very modern Oprah Winfrey type, forgive me, sort of way of, oh, you can just find all truth within yourself. But I would put it like this. Um, when we talk about morality, for example, I think most people, when you start plotting and probing about uh, questions of morality, various forms of the moral argument, realize they do subscribe. They do think some things are objectively wrong. There are certain objective moral values and duties that they think are actually real, that we're not just products of animals and that all moral values are ultimately relative and, and part of a, of a delusion. So I think they can find within themselves that obviously the moral argument speaks to their being a creator God, an ultimate lawgiver. More than that, there are so, along with that, their sense of justice. Most people can see there's something wrong in the world. Most people wish and desire that there is some ultimate justice. And then, and then the other thing, so the third thing, if you will, is the sense, the desire to be loved unconditionally. I think the things that we can appeal to people within themselves speak profoundly to most people if if they give themselves a chance to look at these things. So for example, we are all desire to be loved unconditionally and that's something has gone very wrong. And it's, it's it's through these things that we can talk about Jesus Christ in particular. So you can see from the evidence beyond us and outside us that there's plenty of evidence for a creator God that governs this universe. But then we can talk about the person of Jesus Christ and say, look what happened on the cross. Here was a man who said in various different ways, who showed in various different ways, who claimed in so many ways to be the God of the universe in the flesh. And he goes to a cross so that God's justice is met. His perfect justice has to be served, if you will. The sins of the iniquities of, of us all are laid upon him. But he does it because of his unconditional love. So I'd love to, to say to anyone, when you look inside yourself and you, you know Your sense of justice is real. Your desire for justice is real. Your desire to be loved unconditionally is real because they're both a reflection of the creator of the universe. And it just so happens that creator God has come into this world to see that justice is served, but such is his love for you that you know you have because it reflects the love of your creator. He went to the cross for you um, because he loves you unconditionally. So I think on that personal existential level within us as creatures, as human beings, we can get a sense and see we feel and are made the way we are because we are made in God's image and we we can see the nature of God and in some way that he's real. So even if nobody ever looks at cosmology or maths or just those things within themselves, they can see that they're a reflection of a God that exists and loves them if they spend the time to then look at the man the God-man, the person, and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and just what that means.
0: It sounds like you have given that a lot of thought, and it's really... uh, I did say the word
1: waffle, sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty wonderful. What about if you had a word for Christians in terms of how they actually think about or embody their own faith or how they might um, engage. As it, you had said before and I really appreciated that that just relationally yeah. being in relationship with people who don't agree with you so that there's a warmth a, a genuineness of relationship an openness for discussion about things just like you were talking about to the skeptic.
1: Yeah I do. Sometimes I do like little try phrases. A little try phrase that, that I like. It's a, it's a truism. It's um, People don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, And I like that because I don't, you know, one can risk, even as as a Christian, one could risk um, intellect, over intellectualizing everything. I certainly can. Um, But actually, you know, because that's my, you know, that's the way I'm inclined. I'm kind of, that's my background is investigation. It's like, You know, like Jesus Christ, sometimes I approach as if he's, you know, just this amazing figure to kind of be unmasked, you know, like in the New Testament, you know, unmasking the messianic secret or something. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent.
0: No, it's fine.
1: (laughs) Where was I? But, yeah, I think I've seen it. This is one of the things that I've seen in ministry that's most wonderful is people who, would, would say you know don't aren't like me at all and and, and and they can't get their head around arguments and evidence all this stuff but they can be the most winsome ambassadors for christ m- more than i can their gentleness and their love and and just the spirit working in them and through them is could, could be far more far more for one of a better phrase magnetic. any dry let's say argument that i might sometimes come out with um care so that's right phrase care we're we're all ultimately we're, we're trying to be intentional about conversation intentional about sharing our faith showing our faith in the way we live and being invitational the amount of times i've seen statistics that say xyz people would think about coming to church only if they were only invited this sort of thing and it's it does begin with the culturing and and nurturing of relationships because um so let's say an invitation to our for an invitation to church is 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 cold and dry the invitation is only as good as the person that's making the invitation and I don't mean, you know, a good person. It's, what I mean is, the, any invitation is far more has got far more promise if the bond between the two people is strong. So there's got to be a genuine sense of culturing, nurturing a relationship between the Christian and their and their neighbour and their non-believing neighbour or their or their, you know, those that are non-churched. If we can, contru- and it, it, it can't be faked. Do we as Christians truly love others? Obviously, we, we should. And obviously, we are called, the Great Commission applies to all of us at Matthew 28, you know, the, to always have a reason to, 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 to give a, a defense for, for the hope that you have. We're all called to, to, to do that. But all these things and the way we go about evangelizing and sharing our faith, it's got to come from the foundation of having been having built a relationship where the person that you're engaging with knows you care, knows that you love them and knows there's something about your faith that has done something to you is also, and you know, that's why we're called to live it out. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it makes perfect sense.
1: Um, so again, I mean, for example, going back to Greg Kokel, I like, I like his, I like the way he puts a lot of things. Um, I mean, obviously he's one of the best in terms of conversational evangelism and apologetics, Tactics is always one of the first books I recommend to anybody. Um, but he talks about we, we need more gardeners, you know, and I like that. I, I just think we as Christians, before my time, if you like, before I was a Christian, I, I understand there was lots of calls for people to go through the sinner's prayer always and, and always get people to say that prayer when they're saved. And I don't think it's it's as simple as that. I think most of us are called just to, just to sow seeds. I think for every individual, God knows, obviously, how many seeds it will take for that person to be ready for the heart change and for the spirit to to be able to then convict them without, you know, without being blocked without that person living in rebellion. Now, for some people, it might be one seed, 10 seeds. It might be a hundred seeds. But I think if every Christian just works on being this, you know, being a gardener, as Greg Coco would call it, just working out how they keep sowing the seeds. I think that's, that's what we can all do.
0: I think that's perfect, you know, and sitting back and it has been such a pleasure to hear your story, not only your story, but your, your wisdom and your perspectives. I am struck by the, the paradox or just the contrast Mm. of the selfish way that you used to live, the way that you were Mm. so frank and transparent about your life Mm. and how it is, completely turned upside down completely different you're you're living in in virtually the opposite of selfish you are completely selfish selfless and giving your life in terms of helping others find their way to this life to this god to this jesus christ that you have found that has made all the difference and i just want to thank you rob again for coming on this podcast it's been truly amazing um, and i just truly appreciate your time and more than that your your generosity and your wisdom so thank you so much for coming on
1: it's been a real pleasure thanks ever so much Shauna.
0: thanks for tuning into the side b podcast to hear rob's story I've included all the resources that he mentioned on the podcast in the episode notes for your reference. If you've got questions or feedback about this episode with Rob, you can reach me by email at the at cslewisinstitute.org. If you're enjoying the PsyBee podcast, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe and share with your friends and social network. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be listening to the other side.